everybody. I'm Sam Zellin. Welcome to the History in Today podcast, and I am super excited to announce today that we have a co-host. Uh, welcome, Katie Spinato, to podcast. Hello, I'm very excited to be here. So today, um, we're going to try to, you know, switch it up a little bit, change the format. Obviously, with two people, you can kind of, you know, do that. Uh, we're going to have more of a conversation about a topic instead of just kind of having the lecture style that we've seen in the last three episodes. And um, you want to talk about what we're going to talk about today? Um, yeah, so basically we decided that with all of the current events that are happening right now around um, immigration, the Supreme Court just made a really important decision about um, regarding DACA. Um, we decided that it would be a perfect time to talk about the history of immigration in America. And by immigration, we mean like more like migration because there are so many different layers of how America became the place that it is today. Um, and so we decided that quickly, like just having a meaningful conversation about that sort of history um, would be very valuable, especially considering the decision that the Supreme Court made recently. And um, it's just always important to know about how our country became what it is. Um, so we're going to start by talking about Native people, and then we're going to like go from there and then add on layers of people as we continue the conversation. Yeah. So we're basically going to do um, around six phases of um, kind of the history of immigration in the country. Uh, the phases are very much not uh, in like a, um, that's a way to put it, very like they're not in a structured way where it's not like they're, you know, this one ends, this one starts, this one ends, this one starts. They're going to very much meld together. A lot of them happened during the same time, but were very different attitudes towards what bringing people to this country were, was. Um, and uh, at the end, we're just going to talk about the modern day because that's, you know, what this podcast is about. So uh, the first phase that we're going to talk about is more um, your expertise. So why don't you talk about it? Um, okay, so we're going to start by talking about indigenous peoples um, in America, also known as Native Americans. And so the history of um, how the Native Americans came to inhabit America is still very much unknown. There are many, many aspects of it are unknown still. Um, but what we do know, or what has been hypothesized, is that um, about 23,000 years ago, um, there was a single group that was splintered off from an East Asian population. And the group, which hailed from Northeast Asia, um, crossed what is known as the Bering Land Bridge, which is located between Northeast Asia and Alaska. And so that's how, by crossing that bridge, um, that's how they made their way to the Americas. And so about 13,000 years ago, um, that's when um, indigenous people started to split into different groups, which um, is what created the genetic and cultural diversity that exists today. And you have those people go, you know, they started, you know, coming in through Alaska, what was originally just Canada. Um, and then, you know, you have those people go all the way down to Tierra del Fuego and Argentina, where, you know, they populated the entire continent, two continents, however you want to look at it, but um, the new world, as it would be called in Colombian period. Uh, so after that, after you get the Native Americans here, you get kind of what 
conventional Eurocentric history likes to talk about, where you have this this new world, this new frontier. Um, and I think it's really interesting because we as Americans get this very straightforward kind of, you know, we are the descendants of the British that came and then rebelled against their, their mother country. And um, I think it's really interesting to note that you get, you know, before Britain makes it there in 1585, depending on like, that's their first colony, but 1607 is their first successful colony. You get like a hundred years of not just new world colonization, because that goes back even further to, you know, late 1400s, but you get the Spanish and the French and the Dutch, and all of them are there where you have the Spanish in Florida. The Spanish actually did more in, you know, in South America and Latin America, but they still had a hold in what would become the U.S. And then the French would be up in Canada, but also came down and um, they actually had Verrazano, Giovanni de Verrazano, Giovanni de Verrazano, for example, um, landed in North Carolina or what would become North Carolina and made his way up to New York. Uh, even though he was Florentine, he was um, sailing for the French uh, as Italy was not a country yet. So anybody tries to tell you that, you know, this is quick tangent. Anybody tries to tell you that Christopher Columbus is an Italian hero. Can't be a hero for a country that you weren't for. Uh, he was from Genoa, which was a city-state at the time, and he sailed for Spain. Uh, that's kind of the case with every Italian explorer. They all had their city-states, and they all had their allegiances, but there was no Italy. Um, right. And I think, like, just, like, add on to that, I think that Christopher Columbus is widely acknowledged as someone who was a like a hero for, for Europe, and he was acknowledged for the credit, I guess, of discovering America, but that's just a huge mis misinformation. That's huge misinformation because the the indigenous peoples, they had already they had already claimed America and they had already settled into various organizations and parts of America through the tribal system. And so you have people that are already inhabiting this nation, but then to say that Christopher Columbus discovered, I guess, America is inaccurate because America had already been inhabited and discovered and claimed. And like, um, even, even from a like uh, Eurocentric perspective, the Christopher Columbus claim to discovering America is wrong because Leif, Leif Erikson, who he does have a, a national observance, but it's not nearly as, widely just widely celebrated as columbus day even though columbus day is kind of crumbling now but uh leif erickson um discovered newfoundland about 400 years before christopher columbus i believe and he there are legends that say that his he and his vikings his scandinavian people made it all the way to modern day minnesota so uh that's where you get the minnesota vikings football team by the way um but um so the Christopher Columbus claim that he discovered America when, first of all, he only landed in the Caribbean, he didn't actually get to anything on the mainland, um, is total bogus. And I don't think many people are really going to dispute that if they get the, the information. Right. And then the reason that the term Indian is so politically incorrect is because, as we, as we know, uh, when Christopher Columbus um, set forth on his expedition, he was looking for India because he wanted to take um, 
he wanted to take like some part in the um in the spice trade and so that was happening in the east um in the far east but so he he started his expedition and little did he know um he was traveling west and so he arrived in um in the americas assuming that he was in india which is why he called the um, indigenous peoples um, indians but the reason that's so incorrect is because they were actually native to america which is why they are called native americans indigenous peoples etc and that's where you get the the term like west indies for example when people refer to the caribbean as the west indies and you hear the term east india company which refers to india and yeah it's it's not just the eastern india it's to them that was the east indies because they called the west the caribbean the west indies um there's a lot of really really just like geographic screw-ups before we got you know an accurate representation of what the world looked like but um i think uh once you get you know into this like colombian you know the uh, i call it the colombian expansion just because that's you know the colombian period because it, it is the colombian expansion there's that's what it's referred to in history but um once you get into this you get you know 1607 you get jamestown which is it's named after james who is the king of the king of uh, england at the time and scotland as he had been the rightful king of scotland before but um it's a very structured colony where it's planned it's you know jamestown was sent by the charter of the king to found a colony in the new world and then you have 13 years later you get the pilgrims uh, we talk about it Thanksgiving every year, uh, 1620. And the the pilgrims of 1620 and the Jamestown colonists are two very different stories. And uh, while Jamestown, Plymouth, and St. Augustine in Florida, the Spanish colony at the time, all would become the United States, it's really, really interesting to think about and understand that they had no correlation at this point. Yes, Plymouth and Jamestown were the same ethnicity, but uh, after that, you know, the, the religion mattered so much at the time that a a Puritan colony and a Catholic Anglican. What what would you say that? What what would you refer to Jamestown as? Because James was Catholic, but a lot of the the English people that he commanded were Anglican. Yeah, I mean, when you're looking at the religious construction of the colonies, you, or historians, teachers, they often refer to um, Plymouth as the, the highly Puritan area. New England is known for being Puritan. Um, as, for, as for Jamestown, um, I think that their religion was definitely different, but I don't think it was as like defined like they were members of the Ang they were actually members of the um Ang anglican faith um and so the the main difference i guess between puritans and um puritans in new england and um in plymouth and then people in jamestown is that um pilgrims i guess and puritans they were dissenters from the church of england meaning they didn't want a connection um to the church of england anymore but whereas um, in Jamestown, they were members of the Anglican faith, so they were still a part of the Church of England. Mm -hmm. And the Church of England is That's led... Oh, sorry. You can go. Oh, no. You, you're, you're good. Thanks. So the Church of England is, is uh, if you don't 
know like the history basically king henry the eighth um cut himself away from the pope so the church of england is run by the king of england like it's it's not like a religious organization it is a religious organization but it's not like you know a religious leader leads it that the head of the church and like the direct connection to god in the church of england which to clarify in the u.s is referred to as the episcopalian church uh or episcopal church um is it's it's the king and then it's god uh the puritans on the other hand were protestant and they were more you know to the letter and that's why you get a lot of um the term god fearing where you know uh i believe it's jonathan edwards sinners in the hands of an angry god is that is that the is that the name where he was like you know you're all gonna get burned if you you know continue to do these things you need to be more pious they were much more serious about their religion and they felt very left out by a kind of Anglican versus Catholic dispute in England. So they had to kind of, they were basically refugees. They were refugees. Um, now, unfortunately, you know, the, the, the dark stain on this historical period uh, that you really have to talk about is a lot of people that were brought over weren't part of the Jamestown or the Plymouth. They were uh, involuntarily taken to the New World. And I uh, think you want to talk about that? Yeah. So um, when people were um, first settling in, you know, Jamestown, Plymouth, they were creating their own, like, settlements, they they obviously started setting them up with themselves along with their families, but... Um, or or with other people who came over, it's important to note that a lot of people came over alone, like as men alone, like there weren't many families that were brought like as like a complete family unit, if that makes sense. There were some, but they weren't, it wasn't always just families. Sometimes they were alone. Um, but anyways, they they needed help um, creating these settlements. So. Um, as more people came over from England, um, the people who came over from England, they were not financially well off. And so they couldn't just find like a place to like settle and like they didn't have the correct materials to build and all of that. So they created this system, the, colon- the colonists created this system called um, indentured servitude. And through indentured servitude, um, white men would work um, to help people create these settlements and in exchange they would get land um, for the work that they provided. And so over time, people decided that indentured servitude wasn't really something that they that they wanted to take part in um, because other resources came about, more networking, I guess, um, networking in a very different sense as this was very, very long ago. Um, but the the, failure or the rejection of indentured servitude came with a desire for a remaining desire of labor, but the people that were coming over, they didn't want to take part in that labor. So they had to find the labor elsewhere. And so that's where you see the introduction of the triangular trade and the, the forced, um, the forced movement of, um, men from Africa to the West Indies and to the United States. I think it's really hip. I think it's really hypocritical uh, of kind of the white America to look at indentured servitude and realize that it just a hundred percent. You know, it's it's indentured servitude because it did promise a way out. Had 
definitely the moral high ground over slavery. It's obviously, you know, not the same thing and never will be the same thing. But you can even see, not even in the moral playing field, but in the economic playing field, it is a net loss to have these indentured servants indentured servants as you know as you keep freeing these people you keep you know you're putting these value they're putting the value of currency is basically the value of labor and the minute you free someone and give them land all of that value just disappears and i think that was an inherent problem with the indentured servitude system because the you're just losing money as long as people aren't working because you just have to keep bringing people in. And I think it's really sad when you think about it, how, you know, these people saw a system that didn't work and they stopped practicing it because they knew it didn't work. And they knew, you know, they probably stopped practicing it less because of the moral reasons and more because of the economic reasons. And then they bring in the, you know, the African slaves and obviously, you know, they don't care about the moral reasons there. But um, because they clearly thought the economic reasons were bad with indentured servants, that means that they intended, you know, this was never a, this was never a, uh, a temporary system. It's never a temporary fix. They intended because they knew full well the consequences of freeing free labor, where you lose a lot, you lose all your money because your economy crashes. Um, they intended to have this structure forever. And I think that's kind of the most chilling problem that there, there wasn't, you know, they just, they felt, inf they felt completely superior and they thought this was the way of life and it was totally fine, which is bad. And I think that like the main, I, I totally agree with you with all of that. And I think the main issue, I guess, with defining America today and defining what it means to be American and the American dream and all of, all of those all of those concepts is that you have this like first like i i don't want to say authentic because it's really not authentic but you have this first wave of people come into america they're known as the english colonists they established the colonies um and so you have these people and so they kind of they they identified for themselves what it meant to be truly american and so Today, you have people who who want to stick to that to that those kind of ideals, like being in America means that you're a farmer. Being in America means that you have have these very um, close ties to the land that you that you live on. Um, but that as new groups started to come in, that that kind of connection and those kind of ideals began to, began to fade away. And I think that a lot of the tension that we see today revolves around defining America and what, what does it mean to be America when, when there are so many different groups that came in and then the standards for America were constantly changing. Um, and so I guess that's like a nice like segue into the introduction of more groups. Mm -hmm. um, and I think so, that, I think to kind of add to that, I think it's, it's interesting when you think of like the, you know, the, kind of the heritage and people talk about the heritage of, you know, the, the white rural farmer being this, you know, this is the heart of America when, you know, you get the end of slavery in 1865, and then you get sharecropping for the next hundred years after that. The white rural farmer wasn't really doing much. <laughs> you have the, the people that are really doing the work were the black people before and after the end of slavery. The end of slavery wasn't, you know, the end of pretty much basically free labor. 
in the South and even in the North earlier on. Right. And so, like, that's why when, like, I agree with you, like, they said that, like, the heart of America is, like, the farmer, but they themselves weren't really putting in the work to make their their dream a reality. Um, and so when new groups started to come in, there was a lot of, there was a lot of tension and, um, I guess, ethnic targeting, if that makes sense, um, through people because they thought that that these these people weren't weren't as authentic as them and they thought that the labor that they were that they were going to provide was in in challenge to their to their specific like beliefs in the specific hard set system that they had in place um and so you have um like these signs around america saying um irish um no need apply here you know and so you have like those kind of those kind of attitudes that that spring up because they don't think that that the work that these new groups are doing is as respectable as the quote work that the traditional colonists did. Um, and by quoting work, I mean that quite literally the work that they did was not authentically their work, um, yeah. as Sam previously mentioned. And once once you get, you know, into the actual founding of the country and you know we, we have brought on we've brought in the slave population we brought in the europeans the native americans are still prevalent uh you get this like hundred year span and i was doing the research for this because i wanted to do a phase about the first structure of immigration in this country and like immigration policy and it's really sad because if you look at the the government websites they say that there was and i quote relatively free and open before uh relatively free and open immigration before 1875 and if you think about that that is a hundred years of pretty much if there was land to take you can take it and um obviously some of this a lot of this land was native american land and andrew jackson who was right smack in the middle of that you know that hundred years very much participated into, you know, the manifest destiny and pushing uh, Native Americans along the Trail of Tears into their <clears throat> into their reservations and their cordoned off land. But I think it's really interesting to think that we go we go back to a time in 1790 where, you know, this is over 200 years ago. The only qualification to be a citizen in this country was you had to live in the country for two years, be white. And that was it. So, <laughs> um, uh, two years and being white, and um, you got rights in the Constitution. And it's really interesting that you know, this is the same year that the Bill of Rights was put in the Constitution, and you didn't get rights if you weren't a citizen. So nobody that was here, even though it was quote unquote free and open, uh, anybody that was there for two whole years. Uh, was not guaranteed the basic human rights that, you know, all we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal unless they're not here for two years. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think, like, stemming off that, um, I'm sorry to interrupt, but no I think that everyone everyone refers to, to that statement, all men are created equal, and they try to apply it to to today. And, like, the sentiment is there, and I understand, like, it's, like, a huge sense of... Um, like patriotic duty like this is our country this is what it was like 
founded off of the idea that all men are created equal, everyone's created equal. But I think it's important to keep in mind that every document that you come across, it's a product of the time period that it that it was created in. And so when when you say all men are created equal, it's important to keep in mind that that basically only applied to to white to white men who owned property. It didn't apply to to women at the time. It didn't apply to African-Americans at the time. It certainly did not apply to indigenous peoples or Native Americans at that time. Um, so when when talking about discussions of like what equality means today, it's it's almost counterproductive to mention to mention the Declaration of Independence. And in a sense, that's kind of disappointing. But but in many ways, you just have to keep in mind that what you're looking at is a product of the time that it was published in or created in. Um, so to go back to the to go back to the, the structure that was built about immigration, um, the only real other act that you get between the 1790 Naturalization Act and the 1875 Supreme Court case, which I will get to, is the Steerage Act of 1819, which I thought was kind of a joke because basically um, ships came in. That was you know the only real way of getting across the Atlantic at the time. It was the only real way of getting across. Ships came in that were you know. On bad conditions, people were sick, uh, people were dead, basically, you know, then just dropping them off in the harbor and then going back. And this act basically said conditions have to be better, and then they recorded the demographics. So the president that you have that's established here is you have that conditions have to be better, which was the, the literature that I read about it that didn't seem like there was anything more specific uh, other than that they have to make these ships somewhat presentable and the other precedent is recording the demographics of immigrants which becomes a big issue later on where we start taking stock of who's coming into the country and the only other real event that happened regarding immigration um, between that time period is in 1849 the know nothing party was established which was the first party in this country that was anti-immigration and from that, we see policy throughout the years. Now, in 1875, the Supreme Court declared that immigration was a federal responsibility, which, if you think about it, that was 100 years of just letting the states do whatever they wanted, and according to the website, it doesn't really record that, doesn't really talk about what the states did, according to the, the government. Um, it was free and open before that. But so then you get this this federal responsibility and the thing that I find completely laughable about this whole thing is that from that point that the Supreme Court declared this federal responsibility to 1891 <laughs> you wait. And then, you know, after 16 years you get the Immigration Act which federalizes the process and that is when you hear start you start hearing words like Ellis Island and immigration station and real concept of like a process of immigration in this country. But before then, from 1776 or 1783, really, when the country was officially signed to being away from Britain, uh, from then until 1891, over a hundred years, there's no official immigration code or immigration policy in this country. So it's just willy-nilly. People come, two years, you become a citizen, try not to be sick. That's it. 
<laughs> yeah, I think that I think that 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 um that like lack of formality, I guess, in allowing people to come to America at that point for that that long of a period for over a hundred years, um, that kind of shows the the kind of flaws in um, federalism that we have and um, federalism to to define it is um, the relationship between the federal government and the, the United the States in America. And so there's there's always been a dispute between what powers you give to the federal government versus what powers you give to the states. And so ultimately for the, that 100 years, they decided to give the power to the states to determine what, um, what it meant to be an immigrant. Be, you had to be here for two years and be healthy. Um, but I think that that kind of that that balance of power created a lot of a lot of discontent and it created a lot of um ethnocentric ideas that we see today toward toward immigrants and toward toward people who are quote new to this country um and yeah i didn't i didn't know that sam i think that it's pretty pretty surprising and shocking that we didn't have many regulations on immigration for that long yeah, it's, um, I also didn't know that until I had to do the research. I really like it's it's kind of crazy that we think of, you know, the Civil War as like kind of a, a milestone in this country where like it, we were a country by then. We were a, you know, things had happened. We had had 16 presidents and then we, you know, we had this war and it was the Civil War that actually even got the ball rolling for after the Civil War. People actually wanted to start like taking control of this. Uh, states started actually passing their own laws and that's when the federal government had to step in but we are you know we're past the civil war at this point we're past uh we're basically out of reconstruction at this point and then they're finally like okay let's figure out immigration now right and even when even when they try to figure out immigration they try to make it a more more clean system i guess like and clean being more like organized clear-cut um, even like because they were so late to the party and figuring out how immigration would exactly work, that's kind of what caused um, caused discontent with other groups coming in, and that's what caused stereotypes to arise around different groups that were coming in, um, and that still carries into today. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, I, I know you're going to talk about the exclusion in a second, but I think it's also really interesting that the the exclusion and the stereotyping and the you know specific like compart compartmentalization of every different ethnicity coming into this country is a, in my opinion a direct result of slavery where you have this you have this workforce that is working for free for over 200 years and then when you get rid of that in reconstruction which is obviously when these immigration codes start coming in and they're coming in not from the north uh, you get this need for a new workforce and they want this workforce to be the workforce that they want. They don't want, you know, they don't want them, they don't want to do it themselves. So, um, you get, you know, people trying to exploit workers from other places, just like they did with slavery, but, you know, obviously they can't do slavery anymore. So you need more as I said with the Native Americans, you need more legal reasons to oppress people. And that's where we get. Uh, after the um, <clears throat> Supreme Court case in 1875, but before the Immigration Act, which I find very interesting, 
uh, you get the Asian Exclusion Act or Chinese Exclusion Act. Uh, and do you want to talk about that? Um, yeah, so the Chinese Exclusion Act was um, an immigration law that was passed in 1882 um, that prevented Chinese laborers from immigrating to the United States. Um, it was the first immigration law that excluded an entire ethnic group. Um, and it also excluded Chinese nationals from eligibility for United States citizenship. Um, and so this law between 1882 and 1924, um, this law existed, but the act was then amended to prevent all Chinese nationals from immigrating to the, to the United States. So it became more, more severe in 1924. Um, the 1924 amendment to this act also prevented citizens of other Asian nations from immigrating to the United States. Um, and these laws were renewed twice, and they re remained in effect until they were repealed in 1943. So, in the early like 1900s, you see you see America coming into what into the superpower, I guess that it's known of today. Um, and we started to take a more um, more pronounced role on the world stage. And so, seeing seeing america step into this role and seeing america kind of step into that position where we are fighting um to be a country of democracy on the world stage it's very i guess hypocritical because while we're fighting for for a country to belong to quote the people we are putting extreme limitations on people who are coming here for for better opportunities for work um etc so I think that 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 exclusion of the Chinese juxtaposed with our democratic ideals, I think, kind of is what causes a lot of or it's a result of a lot of the hypocrisy that exists in in our nation's history. I think it's really sad to to kind of add to this. I think it's really sad where you have, you know, this it took more than a, a 50 years to uh repeal this bill which is this act which was just you can't really argue anything that it wasn't racist like it's it's just a straight you know racial profiling and you know uh and i think it's really sad when you you put this in context with things where you have 1943 is when this is repealed and then 1944 is japanese internment so yeah it's one goes into another right you know so, so it's like yeah they're repealing they're running back this this racist act from 50 years ago but they're also not going to help this other community um and i think it's also you know kind of similar to i talked about last week where you have plessy versus ferguson and then you have brown v board where that's a, that's a 50-year difference there too and both of them at the time were considered groundbreaking and good for the oppressed uh, obviously the, the Chinese Exclusion Act wasn't good for the oppressed, but I'm referring to the 43 as opposed to the, the 81. Hey, what, when was it? Right. Was it 81? Sorry, I want to get my date right. My date right. It's 1882 82. and, um, 1943. Okay. Is when it was repealed. Um, but yeah, I think that, that what happened, like what you see with the Japanese internment after the Chinese um, Exclusion Act was repealed, is that they used Japan's role in World War II to justify the internment of citizens of U.S. citizens. These were people who were 
who were here in the United States, they were citizens of the United States. Um, they nearly 70,000 um, people who had to evacuate their homes were American citizens. And um, there were no charges of disloyalty against them. Um, and there was no vehicle by which they could appeal the loss of property and their personal liberty. So you see that that through the Japanese in, um, internment, there are people who were who were rightfully here who held American citizenship, who were who were being mistreated because because their I guess home country um, played this played this role in in World War II, but like looking back at it from today's point of view it can't really be justified because they weren't they were no longer citizens of of japan they were they were officially citizens of the united states and the fact that the united states was doing this to their own citizens i guess is is super sad and super shocking but it's also it's also something that that has still happened happened today with you know um mexico and a lot of the a lot of the controversy between um, official immigration and illegal immigration, and then like the, the separation of families. And granted, some people are not officially citizens, but it's still the same principle. You know, it's still the same principle, and you're still doing this to to groups of people who have not officially like harmed you. Yeah. You know, if that makes sense. It's, it's very sad and it's very shocking yeah it's a pattern it's a pattern that just keeps repeating itself in this country and i think to let's let's kind of take that and kind of go into the the modern day uh conversation where starting in 1965 where you know i was talking about plenty last uh, last week you have the immigration and nationality act which ended this national origins quota which was basically where you know you have um you know, a certain amount of this, this national origin that can come and then it stops. And the reason that they ended this was most likely because of uh, events of, during World War II, where they had to turn um, many, many Jews away and send them back to Germany. Um, but they also had other problems with this. Another way, just, you know, obviously racist uh, and obviously, you know, oppressive rule. And they moved it into a skill slash family-based system uh, for the Eastern Hemisphere. And I think it's really interesting to think about that because in 1976, that exact act was amended um, <clears throat> to include the Western Hemisphere. And basically what this act did was it was the family and skill-based, but also yearly visas were capped at 20000 And at first, this was only the Eastern Hemisphere, so it was oppressive to the Eastern Hemisphere. Um, obviously it was better than the original, but it was still oppressive to the Eastern. Uh, but then when they moved it to the Western Hemisphere, the only country that was really affected by Western Hemisphere countries coming to America that had more than 20,000 people needing visas was Mexico. And this is when we start to see a, a problem with immigration policy just kind of strongly pushing against Mexico. And from 1976 onward, you just keep seeing these, you know, these acts and laws being passed that restrict people coming from Mexico. And that's kind of the modern day issue. Right. And I think that kind of like tying it back to this like common theme of like, like working and 
and making a living in America and what is the quote correct way to work in America. I think that a lot of people fail to realize that the people who are coming from Mexico, they're not necessarily taking jobs that like require like high levels of education, if that makes sense. Like the people migrating here are taking like houseworking positions, um, landscaping positions, like positions that like don't necessarily need like a high level of like degree, if that makes sense. And so they're not, they're not technically competing with like all levels of the, the job fields. Um, yet they still are deemed as a threat, which doesn't really make sense to me because a lot of people go to college in America and they, they, they go for, you know, higher end jobs and all of that. Um, and so you have all of this pressure being put on, on Mexico. Um, but then you still have other people coming into, into the country from other different areas and, and they might be competing with the job field at a higher level. You know, so so there there's this there's this stereotype that people from Mexico are coming in and they're they're taking jobs that American people want. But in the grand scheme of things, they're not they're not going for the the higher end jobs, if that makes sense. I don't I don't know if that 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 is I like totally, worded correctly, but I agree. I agree with what you're saying. And I think, unfortunately, it's another pattern that just keeps popping up where even, you know, after slavery, I think it kind of echoes the black experience in this country where you have, mm -hmm. it's, it's just talking about all the jobs the white people don't want to do, where, you know, the white people want to feel, you know, the, the, the white American feels this superiority. Uh, and, you know, you get all this, this oppression in the country but also they don't want to do the dirty jobs and you can't have it both ways. It's immoral. Right. It's immoral to be putting people down, but it's also just, it's also immoral to be only opening spots for the, you know, the low end and for the, you know, to basically restrict people from coming into the country. And then the people that you let in the country only let them in at the bottom. Right. And I think that the reason that they don't, that people don't go for those higher, at least people from Mexico don't go for those higher end jobs and positions is because, because the system is so ambiguous and the system is like, there are many issues with the system that exists still. Um, they, they don't feel like they, they can, you know, they don't feel like it's something that they can, can realistically do. Um, whether it be strict regulations that are put on by the law, um, whether it be the technicalities of holding a visa, um, any of any of those any of those regulations and any of those um, systems that are put in place um, for immigrants to temporarily work here to to like those pathways to citizenship, I think that a lot of the limitations that are being put on right now um, cause people to feel as though they, they cannot go for those higher positions, which is is immoral. I think that no matter how you cut it, all, all sides of these issues that we're talking about, it's just the way we've dealt with it is in an immoral manner. Yeah, I think yeah. the other big problem is the, um, the system of naturalization, where if we go back to what we were talking about with 1790, it was be here for two years and be healthy. 
Uh, now it is not that at all. It is a you know complex system. You have to get a green card. You have to be you know sponsored. You have to have a family member, and it's it's a years long system that some people just can't wait for. And you can't wait because you can't bring your whole family at a time. You can't wait because you don't have the money to stay in the country. You can't wait because of these oppressive caps on visas. And the system knows that. The system is well aware of that, and they know that by you know making a system that is hard to get through you're going to stop people from entering the country and you're going to kind of put a a slow on immigration which is the goal of making the system more and more complicated and i think an immigration system that doesn't promote immigration is a broken system yeah exactly and i feel like i feel like people complain about about people coming into the country without without going through the proper channels, but it's like, who can, who can blame them? I mean, if they're escaping an unideal situation, if they're potentially put in danger, if they're whatever, whatever push factor that is pulling them toward America, you know, whatever, whatever thing that is making America desirable to them, like they might not necessarily have a choice. And so I think that, that a lot of the, a lot of the issues that are talking that we've been talking about and the, and the, I guess, morality of illegal immigration is almost void because how can we how can we criticize a people when when this problem exists because of our fractured system of our hypocritical system, you know? Yeah. And I think the, the hypocrisy really goes deep with some one argument that I hear a lot is um, the argument of I came over legally. Why can't they? And I think people there's there's two problems with that and the first the first one is that a lot of people that say that have history uh before that 1875 deadline where it was as the government is currently referring to it as relatively free and open where you could come and just become a citizen and your family was a citizen and you had family migration where you would just bring everyone over and everybody would become a citizen and I think people kind of just are like oh yeah I became this I I my family immigrated 100 years ago it's the same thing. And it's very much not the same thing. And I think another, the other important thing is that there is a total romanticization of mm -hmm. what immigration stations were even a hundred years ago, where because our family members went through them, you know, both, both of our families, actually, I don't know when your family, my family, both sides of my family came in the beginning, early uh, 20th century. Uh, when, when did your family come over? I mean, for me, it's a for me, it's a very different case because I'm I'm adopted, and right. so if we're talking like if we're talking about my family, my um, grandmother, her family came over, and so like they came over around like the early 1900s. Okay. Um, and so her like her family like when she came over, she still spoke Italian, and so um, she saw like many like issues like with the system. Um, but like going back to like the naturalization process, because I'm adopted, I gained um, citizenship through my parents because they were both United States citizens and they lived in the country for a certain amount. Well, they lived in the country for their whole life. And so because I lived with them for like a certain period of time, I was able to become a citizen through them, if that makes sense. Um, and, and I came from Romania. I came from a different country. Um, so it's like those it's it's very it's very difficult because every situation like you said sam is so different 
you know, and what's what's easy for what's claimed quote easy transition for one person is totally different for another because like immigration through adoption is a very through international adoption is a very set in stone system and there are so many regulations and so many like strategic like paths that you have to take but you do it in a more timely fashion whereas you have this other like the system for immigration when you don't have someone in the united states already like that system is so long you know and then so it's like how oh sorry no no you go and that's like where you get like you know adoption is is the one is the one you know shining example where you know it, it works a lot of the time and then you get daca on the other side where you have instead of people instead of parents born in the country having a kid come over it's parents not born in the country having a kid in the u.s and I think both of those, both sides of those coin, the children should be given the right to live in the U.S. Because it's not like I think that what what it boils down to is it's not the child's choice. You know, like they don't necessarily have a say in what in what they do. They're just listening to what their parents do. Like I came over here when I was two, and if the United States suddenly decided that I I was no longer, you know eligible here i'd be like it would be like well i came here because my parents brought me here like it wasn't like a choice like it just kind of happened you know and so i think that that kind of like putting the blame on on children who come here because their parents came here like and they they came from somewhere other than america like putting the blame on the child in that case but then making the child um through adoption it's carefree or it's it's easygoing because their parents already live in america it's just they they shouldn't be two different two different ways because in in both scenarios the child really doesn't have much of a choice you know it doesn't seem like it really makes much sense that there's that strict dichotomy of the two yeah now uh, we did get off a little on a tangent i did want to go back and talk a little bit about the romanticization romanticization of the uh immigration stations uh where you get you know you go back to these people that are like yeah my family came over legally why can't yours and i think you know we talk about ellis island and we talk about other immigration stations but mostly the the new york harbor shining example uh is yet again another first of all another example of how immigration really didn't start happening for a hundred years where you know the statue of liberty wasn't there in 1776 um and ellis island is not the beautiful streets paid with gold uh oasis that it is kind of referred to as now uh they had horrid uh entrance exams where you had to be checked medically uh for example one of the exams was they took a hook and they pulled your eyelid down and they checked to see if you had diseases obviously disease wasn't really well understood at the time so this wasn't really very humane looking back uh and probably wasn't even very useful (laughs) uh but um that was another thing there was you know pretty much you came you came to ellis island and they decided are you going to be useful to this country and that was whether or not and if you weren't useful to the country they were like okay go back to your country and it wasn't just take a flight back to your country. It was you're going all the way back to Russia or something like on a ship. And for a lot of people, that just wasn't possible. So a lot of people either entered illegally or just kind of perished, unfortunately. 
Yeah, I think I think to like kind of sum sum a lot of this up, it's that everyone everyone who came here, no matter how no matter how they got here, no matter what their status is, like no matter all of that, there are there are all these different these different hardships that everyone everyone had to face. And that's because well, with the exception of the colonists, they just kind of came here. But I'm ta- I'm talking like after like in modern in modern history, you know, eighteen eighteen fifties on. You know, everyone everyone who came here like had it had it rough in one way or another and i and i think it just ties back to the system not being not being efficient currently and they're not being a system for so long um that that it put pe- a lot of people through unnecessary hardship and then adding on the layer that people people came here against their will for to endorse an immoral um an immoral practice like slavery um and and all of that kind of combined like no experience is no experience is comparable to another one and i think that 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 like what you were saying about like my family came legally why can't yours well every family faces hardship in one way or another every circumstance is different and i think that instead of using that like divisive divisive like attitude i think everyone needs to remember where they came from and and how they got where they are and asking their family the hard questions where did you how did you get here how did we get to where we are today and i think that that's like that's what's important about digging into your past and digging into digging into how our country became the way it is today yeah i totally agree i think that you know the it's very true it's very true that uh everybody has a different experience with immigration and i think that you know the real takeaway from this is that we we need a system of immigration that is pro-immigration. Like we have yes. currently we have a system under not just under Trump, but really under in the last, you know, 50 years, 100 years that that uh, the system has existed. Obviously, before then, there really wasn't anything. Um, we have had a system that doesn't want people to come unless they are going good to be used. Uh, no one is no one. You know, the, the whole come to America, the streets are paved with gold, you will get the American dream, you will be, you know, rich and famous, and everyone will love you, is, is not the, the reality. We, we don't, we don't have a system that has this path to success. We, we, you have to either, you know, get lucky, or, you know, right, be at the right place at the right time. And you don't, we need a system that just actually puts people on that right path. Right. And I think like looking at like the American identity and what it means to be American, I think, I think just recognizing the, how we all got here, the different backgrounds that we have, acknowledging that like we, we always talk about how America is a melting pot. Um, and we talk about how like America's I diverse and America accepts all. I think we need to start living up to those ideals and actually doing the doing the hard steps changing the system to do what it actually is supposed to do allow immigration to happen you know accepting people based off their differences accepting people based off their their differences in in culture their differences in language like all of those differences need to be accepted if we're truly going to be a country that is accepting of all people i totally agree so I think that pretty much wraps up our uh, episode for the week. I am so happy that you were able to join us this week, Katie. 
Uh, yeah, I hope my insight was helpful. Yeah, it was um, great. Uh, is there anything that you want to say before we just end it out? Um, no, I'm I'm good. I think that this was a productive episode. Cool. Well, I really hope that you guys enjoyed it. Um, please uh, leave us some feedback uh, if you liked it, if you like the new format, if you like the fact that it's longer. I personally think that a longer episode is better. I when I listen to podcasts, I usually like the like hourish long podcast as opposed to the like half hour. Uh, please let me know. Please let Katie know. Um, yeah, I hope you guys all have a great week and see you next week. Thank you. Bye. Bye.